All right, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, we will be there, starting at verse 20. Um, when you're reading a, a new book or watching a new movie, one of the things you have to do right away is figure out what kind of world you're entering into. Is it a supernatural and strange world where supernatural and strange things take place? Do animals talk? Are there superhuman powers? Are there godlike beings at work? Or is it a natural world where everything has an explanation in the natural processes of human decisions and laws of physics and all of this? The really confusing books and movies are those that lead you along thinking that everything's natural and then all of a sudden something supernatural comes in and throws your whole system off. Well, a similar thing is happening in real life. Whether we realize it or not, we are all trying to figure out what kind of world this is. We are trying to figure out, is this a supernatural world or a quote-unquote natural world? In the words of a noted philosopher, is this an enchanted world with a god or gods or spirits at work? Is there more to reality than what our eyes can see, our hands can touch? Is there meaning and purpose to this life beyond what we bring to it? Or is this a purely natural world that can be completely explained by scientific observations? What kind of world do we live in? Well, into this question comes the claim of Christianity that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That a man named Jesus lived for 30 years, claimed to not only come from God, not only be a messenger from God, but to be God himself, foretold that he would die and rise again, and then did just that. And if that's true, then there is no question that we live in an enchanted, supernatural world. There is more than meets the eye. There is more than we can explain with just observation and scientific processes. This changes everything if Jesus rose from the dead. And that's essentially what Paul is arguing in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, which we started last week. Everything, and I don't mean that in an exaggerated way, literally everything hinges on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Yours life and my life and what we do with it and who we are and why it matters hinges on whether or not Christ rose from the dead. Last week, we, we went in, we considered what if this were not the case, because that's what Paul does, and he goes down all these scenarios and implications of what if Christ didn't rise from the dead? Well, that changes everything. But if he did rise from the dead, that changes everything. So we're going to start at verse 20 today, when we look at, uh, where we look at this in, a, in, the, in the positive of that affirmation, in that affirmation. So verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So this is the, the true situation that we are in, the real reality of our world. Our world is such that Jesus, God in the flesh, came, lived, died, and rose from the dead. Um, as we've seen, Paul goes to great lengths to, to demonstrate that this is, in fact, a fact. He says that Jesus rose and then appeared to over 500 people. 
And he, and he gives some of their names, and he says most of them are still alive if you want to go verify with them. Like, this, this really did happen. We're not just making this up. And many scholars and historians have demonstrated that the resurrection of Jesus is incredibly reliable as a historical event. For, for one, among many other reasons, there is no other sufficient explanation for how a bunch of once timid, fearful de- disciples who denied Jesus at his death and, and turned away all at once suddenly became bold in proclaiming Jesus as the risen Savior to the point of their own suffering and death. God's word tells us why this happened. Christ has been raised from the dead. And if that's the case, then all of the the what-if scenarios that we looked at last week, these implications if Jesus has not risen from the dead, they're all false. So our preaching, which would have been in vain, our proclaiming of the gospel, which would be in vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, is not in vain. Likewise, our faith, which would have been in vain if Jesus had not risen from the dead, is not in vain. You are not still in your sins if you are in Christ, but they have been cleansed and forgiven. His resurrection proves the sufficiency of his death to accomplish that. Again, those who have died in Christ or belonging to Christ have not, in fact, perished but will live again. Our hope is not a hope that is in this life only but extends beyond this life, which means that we who hope in Christ are not of all people most to be pitied, even when we feel weak and insignificant and pained in this life. Again, our striving and sacrificing and enduring suffering for Christ, which would have been in vain if Christ had not risen, is not in vain. Our battling sin and temptation, our resisting enticements to to give in to, to sin and every desire, is not in vain. All will be worth it in the end. Because in Christ, because in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And Christ's resurrection tells us something about our resurrection. That's what Paul has been doing here. He's been connecting and showing the necessary connection between, well, if Christ is raised from the dead, then we too, as his people, will be raised from the dead. So look at all of verse 20 now. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, even if you didn't know what the word first fruits mean, you should know what the word first fruits mean. It's a very simple word. It means the first fruits of a harvest. So, if, say, an apple tree, the, the first apples that come on the tree are the first fruits of the apple tree. And the point here is that they are a sign, a promise of what is to come, of more to come. So, what Paul is saying is that just as Jesus rose from the dead, so will we who belong to him, be raised from the dead, be raised to eternal life. Just as Christ was raised victorious and death did not have power over him, so will we be raised victorious over death. Christ's resurrection as a first fruit also gives an indication of what what our resurrection will, will be like. Christ's resurrection indicates that 
Our resurrection will be a raising of our, our physical bodies to new and imperishable, undying life. And we know that this will ultimately be in the presence of God, surrounded by his goodness, with none of the effects of sin for all eternity. So just as death wasn't the end for Christ, so death is not the end for us. Just as the value of Christ's life was not determined by what, only what, by what happened in the 30 plus years leading up to his death, so the value and worth of our life is not merely determined by what we can accomplish, what successes we have, what experiences we have in these 70, 80, 90 years. This, of course, doesn't mean that what we do now doesn't matter, nor does it mean that only, quote-unquote, spiritual things or religious things matter. But it does mean that no assessment of life that doesn't factor in that which comes after death, no assessment of life that assumes death is the end, is complete. No, our, 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 our life, our goal in life is not to win the applause of those around us, not to prioritize only those things that will make us feel good now, that seem worth it now, not to, as Scripture says, fill up our barns, our storage units, our houses with possessions and wealth and securities. No, our goal in life is to live in such a way that we will hear the words on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Or in the words of Colossians, to live in such a way that whatever we do, we work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving Christ, the Lord Christ. And so the end justifies the present. What is to come justifies how we live now, which means every act of obedience and faithfulness, and devotion, and trust, and love, and delight in the Lord, for the Lord's sake, will be worth it in the end. Every sacrifice, every suffering done in service to the Lord will be worth it in the end. So how do we know that this hope is ours? Who, who gets to claim this hope? Paul goes on in verse 21. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. One of the surprising things as you read through the Bible is the, the very simple, stark separation of all of humanity into two groups. Right? Those in Christ and those outside of Christ. Or here, those in Christ or those in Adam. Um, we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians, there are those who, who boast in the cross of Christ and see it to be, see what, what God did in the cross as the greatest wisdom and power of God. And on the other hand, there are, there are those who see the cross, see what God did there, and see it only to be foolish, offensive, weak, useless. This stark separation of humanity into these two groups. Now, we separate people into groups all the time. We, we are constantly making distinctions and separations 
judgments, putting people into groups, but not along these lines. In fact, there is massive pressure in our society to make other distinctions, other boundary lines more important than this one. But God says that above all else, there are those in Adam, you have this group, and there are those in Christ. Our identity is first and foremost about our relationship with Christ. Do we belong to him? Are we in him? Or are we apart from him? And our natural state, which we are born into, is apart from Christ. Our natural state is to be in Adam and subject to the death that is in Adam. Is to be separated from God, dead because of sin, without his favor and grace, without hope in the world. We tend to think, and this is a part of sin working in us, that our situation is much less extreme. That we are merely sick and need some strength. Need some medicine. Weak and need some strength. Lost and need some direction. Make mistakes. And well, doesn't everyone? God, God will understand. We tend to think that our situation is much less extreme. But we are dead apart from Christ. And we need complete rescue. We need to be made alive. So what does it mean to be in Christ then? Um, Interestingly, this is the way the Bible most often refers to God's people, to Christians in the New Testament. Uh, Paul uses this phrase uh, over a hundred times in one way or another. Those who are in Christ, we are referred to by our position, our status, how God sees us. And the idea is that if you are in Christ, you have all the blessings that, are, that flow from him, that are secured by him and his life, death, and resurrection. If you are in Christ, you have peace with God. You are adopted as God's child. You have forgiveness of sins. You have the confidence that God is working all things together for your good. You have the hope of being resurrected to new life with him. All of these blessings of the gospel flow through Christ, and they are found as we are united with Christ. And we are united with Christ by True faith and repentance. This is not something we, we do for ourselves or earn or secure for ourselves, but something that God does for us as we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so the great burden of our lives, the great burden of yours and my life, is to, to see that we are in Christ It is not merely to to get some benefits from Christ. It is to see that we are in Christ, not apart from Christ, not outside Christ. On this topic of hope, of resurrected life, the one who has the hope of resurrection is the one who is in Christ. There's no end-around way to get hope but reject and ignore Christ. You know, we're not talking about hope as just this kind of vague, undefined idea. We're talking about a hope that is in Christ, because of Christ, for the glory of Christ. All of the benefits of the gospel, of God saving us by his grace, come to us as we are joined to Christ in faith. In other words, there's no latching on to the the benefits 
of the gospel that God has for us apart from coming to Christ. There's no receiving the work of Christ for us without coming to the person of Christ. There's no living with the hope of resurrection while living indifferent now to the glory and goodness and presence of Christ. No, God's purpose is that we would come to Christ, that we would behold him to be precious and good and sufficient and satisfying and turn now to love him and worship him and trust in him and obey him and continue doing this into eternity. So I don't assume, even in a church, that there's no reason to ask, have you come to Christ? Have you come to God in Christ? Not merely have you found some, some benefits of, that God seems to offer, but have you come to Christ as Lord, as Savior? Not merely have you found some ideas that in the Bible to be interesting, and worth considering, but have you come to Christ? Paul then begins to flesh this hope out a bit more. What does this look like? The rest of the passage here, and then we'll, we'll unpack it, starting in verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is a reference to Psalm 110. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then Paul quotes Psalm 8. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. When it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, that is Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, that is God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that is Christ, that God may be all in all. So we get a picture of what is to come. Uh, Jesus, again, rose as a first fruit. Jesus will return and will usher in the resurrection of those who belong to him. We know from other passages in, in, in the Bible that there's also a day of judgment that coincides with this. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So on that day, God will separate. We will see a separation between those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ, between those who have come to Christ and who have boasted in the cross, boasted in God's grace towards them as their only hope in life, being separated from those who continually and finally refuse to come to Christ, who continually and finally live only for themselves and reject God as their creator, savior, and Lord. This is always a a stark and somewhat shocking reminder. But it's a reminder of the God-centeredness of our world. It's a reminder that in the end, what will be most clear is what are 
position towards our relationship with our worship of God is or is not. We exist to acknowledge God as God and to delight in him and the multitude of his perfections and goodness and grace. That's what we were made for. And that day of judgment will reveal that nothing else matters more than this. That that was the end to which we were all created, to which we have been called. Paul continues, he says, then comes the end. Now, by the end, he means God's ultimate victory over and vanquishing of all his enemies. Victory over all that pushed back against his purposes and his people and his kingdom. Um, Paul gives us a, a couple images to imagine this, to grasp this. He says Jesus will destroy every rule and every authority and power. Quoting from the Old Testament, he will put all his enemies under his feet, including the enemy of death. Now, in a sense, this has already happened, right? In a sense, this happened at the cross. Um, and we know this in part because Colossians, one of Paul's other letters, uses similar language to speak of this being accomplished at the cross. It says Jesus disarmed and triumphed over the rulers and authorities. The victory was won at the cross. However, we don't yet fully experience or see that victory. Sin and the devil are still at work. We are daily in a battle. Doesn't always feel like victory. God, in his working right now, and his sovereignly working in and through all things, has to work through some things that are not ultimately good, not of him. Now, his purposes are always good, and what he brings about for his people are always good, but he sometimes has to work through things that are not good. But on that day, his victory will be clearly seen and established completely. God will be all in all, as Paul says at the end there, and his goodness and his will and his power will be seen and experienced fully and directly. Now, perhaps a, an, an imperfect but a helpful analogy will help. As a child, sometimes a father's love is shown through things like discipline and delayed gratification, and even displeasure. This is not the case because a father is necessarily a poor father, but because of the presence of sin and rebellion, both in the child and in the world around which the father is attempting to protect the child from. But what if you, as a child, fully agreed with the will of your father or your mother? What if what your father de desired for you, willed for you, was the same that you desired for yourself? What if you and your, your father or mother pursued the same ends and goals, loved the same things? And not only that, everything around you was also working in line with your father's goodwill. In this situation, your father would love you just the same, but your experience of that love would be much more certain, much more Full, direct, joyous, happier. In a similar way, God will destroy every enemy, including your sinful desires, the temptations of your heart and of the world, all lies and deceptions about his good.
goodness and provision. In that time, your will will always be aligned with his will, your desires with his desires, your goals with his. More than that, everything in the world around, in his kingdom, and everyone else will be aligned with God's will and goals and working towards the same end. You will never be doubt, tempted to doubt his goodness, his nearness, his protection, his provision. You'll never be tempted to turn away from him, to find what is only in him in something else. This is surely part of what it means that God will be victorious over all things, over all his enemies. And why it is such good news. Every thought, every molecule that is in opposition to God, including those in us, those in the world, those in the spirit world, will be vanquished. And what freedom and joy and relief this will mean for God's people. And the ultimate end here that Paul speaks of in this, he says in that last verse, that God may be all in all. The ultimate purpose and end to which God is working is the display, well, the, the solidification of and the display of his sovereign lordship over all things. That's a purpose statement there. That God may be all in all. Paul sums it up by saying, this is what God is working to. This is what all of this will accomplish so that God may be all in all. In Romans 11, he says something similar. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We have a subtle way of changing Christianity, of changing our, our faith, of changing God himself to ultimately be about us. Such that we think that God is man-centered rather than God-centered. And if that's the case, then surely we have reason to be man-centered as well. We have a way of thinking and speaking about God as if his greatest purpose is to bring us happiness and comfort and salvation. But God's greatest purpose is that he would be all in all. That he would be seen and celebrated and rejoiced in as all in all. And to this end, he does set his love on us. And he does secure happiness for us. He does comfort us. He creates us to be a people who are happy and satisfied in him, comforted in him, consumed by his perfections and glory and grace. In Sunday school this morning, we read a, a quote from J.I. Packer. He says, The Father is as concerned to exalt the Son as he is to rescue the lost. We tend to only focus on the latter. But the Father, clearly in Scripture, is as concerned to exalt the Son to be all in all, as he is to rescue the lost. Brothers and sisters, keep your faith God-centered. Keep your living for the glory and pleasure of God, and he will take care of you, and he will comfort you.
And lastly, let us not leave a text like this merely pondering it, merely trying to understand it, merely adopting its truths. Uh, this text and texts like these are meant to be celebrated. This is a celebratory text. All of this is great news worth rejoicing in. Um, especially as we talk about the victory of God. When you go to the book of Revelation, you find God's people celebrating wildly God's victory, both at the cross and on the last day. And this is something that we should not wait till then to do. This is something that we should begin to rejoice in and be thankful for and celebrate even now if we belong to him. One commentator, Gordon Fee, writes, The resurrection of Christ has determined our existence for all time and eternity. Again, it changes everything. We do not merely live out our length of days and then have the hope of resurrection as an addendum. Rather, as Paul makes plain in this passage, Christ's resurrection has set in motion a chain of inexorable events that absolutely determines our present and our future. Christ is the first fruits of those who are his, who will be raised at his coming. And that ought to both, both to reform the way we currently live and to reshape our worship in, to seasons of unbridled rejoicing. How often do you have seasons of unbridled rejoicing? How often are you celebrating, even now, what God has promised and planned for his people? How often are you celebrating God himself and his victory and his glory and the display of his wisdom and power and his grace and compassion? And if you find this a struggle, which we all do at times, or if you find that you, you don't rejoice in this, you are not looking forward forward to this, continue to peer in and behold Christ for who he is. See who he is and what he's done. Come to him, cling to him, trust, see the sufficiency and satisfaction of what he has done for us, of his death for our sins. Find his gracious welcome and compassion. Be satisfied in him. Let's pray.